Welcome to the Hanu Health Podcast, where our mission is to help you to breathe better and stress less. On this show, we discuss a variety of topics and provide practical suggestions for improving health and well-being. However, none of the education, tips, and tricks provided should be taken as medical advice. Your medical doctor is your best bet if you have medical questions. Also, on this podcast, we interview numerous guests from diverse backgrounds, interests, and may carry some unique ideas. Hanu Health as a company does not endorse all statements provided by guests or condone all suggestions or protocols discussed. We just like hearing about cool people doing rad and new things. So sit back, relax, breathe, and enjoy the show. Hey, Patrick. It's good to see your face and hear your voice, man. I feel like it's been a while that since we've done one of these, maybe a month or so, which is weird because our cadence has been that we provide one of these Q&As once every month. So it's good to see you, man. I know it's been my fault. I'll tell the listeners it's been my fault. Like my head's been spinning the last few months. And so for our last <laughs> recording, I left like all my gear at home at the time of our recording. And it was when I was going to set up my mic and my computer that I found, oh my goodness, it's not even here. So glad to be back with you man yeah likewise yes that's the problem when you've got about we can't even just turn up ourselves anymore we have to turn up with about 20 pieces of equipment between mics and headphones and cameras and laptop and power cables that's the big one you might have everything but you don't have the power yeah, cable. The power cables huh? so yeah <laughs> right to be here without the power cables you're kind of in trouble <laughs> you or are. you can start with like it, you can start with like the battery power of your laptop but like once it's dead then you're just royally screwed so yeah you might as well go ahead and make sure that the number one thing you pack is your power cords <laughs> but yeah i feel like i needed to share with people like how i screwed up royally on our last recording by not bringing my stuff and forgetting it because like some Sometimes I get like these questions and I think it's like this notion or people think, oh, this is like the psychologist who's all about like performance and cognition. He probably has it all as all as, you know, ducks in a row. And the answer to that or my response to that is nope. <laughs> it's like there are some times when I do have my ducks in a row and there are other times where no, I get derailed. I get distracted. Like the bit of ADHD inside of me like comes out and like my focus will shift like to one thing really, really hardcore, but it's, you know, to mm. the, to the void of me focusing on other things. So yeah. sometimes I like to throw out there that I'm, I'm human. I mess up sometimes. Yeah, but I think sometimes Jay is that there's kind of a perception out there that when you're doing something that you embrace it to the point of 100% that everybody is able to do it perfect. Like if you were talking about stillness of the mind, you know, and somebody who's practicing stillness of the mind, an outside observer might expect that person never to get angry. But the reality is that person is going to get angry. A person Mm -hmm. with really good focus and concentration the outside observer, as you pointed out, is going to expect that that person is not going to make any mistakes or forget where they leave their keys, etc. Of course they're going to. But I think it's the extent to which it happens. Whereas right. if you have somebody right. who is on the brink of turmoil all the time, there it doesn't take much to push them over the edge. Whereas somebody who's more yeah. calm and collected, they can, they can take a little bit more. And the same with somebody who's focused. They can handle much more before they start getting a distracted mind, as opposed to somebody with a distracted mind already, they're they're already forgetful. So I think it's relativity, yeah. isn't it? No, one hundred percent. You know, it's one of those things that, again, for me, it's kind of like the stress guy, the psychologist. It's like so. There's almost like this thought of people that they throw different. Uh, professionals or influencers or, you know, health and wellness gurus, like on this pedestal of like, oh, I bet they don't experience as much stress as I do. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, I bet that their response to stress looks totally different. And in some cases that might be the case, but it turns out that I get angry. I get stressed. I I have not found the way, Patrick, to eliminate my stress, Mm. (laughs) like eliminate me being in encountering stress. Now, my response to stress, that's what I've really shifted and focused on. And I think that's what we really try to preach here at Hanu is that it's not about getting rid of stress and it's not about demonizing stress. It's about our perception. It's about our mindset. It's about our interaction and our control, physiological and psychological control, emotional control as well 
well of how we respond to stress. Mm. And that's a big component because there are certain things that are just natural, inevitable parts of life. Our focus is going to get shifted. Our stress is going to be there. We're going to experience every single emotion. We should. like That's a part of humanity. It's a part of life. But the one problematic piece is, is not necessarily if we encounter it, because we will encounter it, it is when we encounter it, how do we interact with it? How do we respond to it? And to be completely transparent and frank, even with immense amounts of training, sometimes we're not going to respond the best way. And we're going to have to learn from that. I mean, we hear, I've heard really good examples from monks who have practiced meditation for 40, 50 years, for six hours a day. And when people ask them, when they do surveys or studies, uh, when asking them, like basically like, so do you not experience like anger or these types of emotions ever? Like, do you never lash out? They're like, uh, no, <laughs> like I absolutely experience these things. My interaction with them, the severity, the duration, the frequency of them are, is a lot less than when I'm not practicing or before I practice. But no, we experience and we're going to encounter and it's, we're going to have that level of emotional volatility and behavioral kind of externalization. It's going to happen. It's not going to be fully eliminated. So that is my way of saying, like, if we do experience those things, there's no need to beat ourselves up about it. Like, it just mm. happens. I forget my laptop at home and we can't do our recording. Like, yeah, it sucks. It makes me upset. I'm going to be frustrated. It's a natural, okay emotion. Do I allow it then to wreck my day, my week, my month, you know, my year, my decade? No, I have to then just re regroup come back to the drawing table and say, okay, now that the stress that I'm experiencing, the frustration I'm experiencing is here, what do I do with it? How can I use it um, to perform to say, okay, now well, let me learn from it. That's all how I want people to interact with stress and with whatever emotion I'm just using stress or frustration as this example. But I want people to really view it that way. I think actually the person in everyday life is in a better position than the monk. Okay, mm -hmm. the monk is following his or her breathing. They're very much in awareness. They're they're very knowledgeable in terms of a theoretical, if you look at a book on, say, Buddhism or whatever, and the depth to which it, which it goes in theory, and they're also practicing. But they're not being confronted by these challenges every day if you're meditating six hours a day to the same extent as which a normal individual is. Say, for example, a person in a small business, a university student, a person in family life, a corporate worker, so they're being confronted by stresses pretty much every day. And you kind of develop a resilience to those stresses that comes with age. And I suppose the other thing is, Jay, you could be somebody in an office and you'd really wonder what's the best approach. The person gets into a difficult situation, but they bottle everything up. So they're sitting on the outside and running on the inside. Or the other mm -hmm. person lashes out and lets a few shouts. And I suppose that's not, it's not PC in today's modern age. It's very. Right. It's gone very woke. It's gone very afraid. Anybody to say anything to anybody. Everything is. It's almost that there's this an insta factor which has drowned over absolutely everything. There's a pressure now on people to be conform conformists, not just on the outside appearances, but. Uh, I think it's kind of strange. I think it's strange where it's all going, but that's just me anyway. No, for sure, for sure. You know, I think in the end, one of the things that I really feel will help to move the needle on all of this is for us to come back to our basics of who we are as humans, um, who we are as beings. Uh, we get so caught up in everything else, whether it be um, what we need or what we feel we need, how we need to present ourselves to others, um, what we feel like we want kind of our image to be, I think that that comes to the detriment of us allowing ourselves to experience a certain side of humanity. And because that has been lost, and, I, and I'm trying not to get too esoteric, but because that has been lost, I feel like it has just caused such a massive disconnect from ourselves and to others it's affected relationships. And so when I say coming back to basics and really identifying within ourselves what it is to be human, 
my conceptualization of it and in an effort to not overly sound like a psychologist is I think it all comes down to what are we at our core, which is relational communal beings and relational communal beings means being vulnerable. It means being ourselves. It means removing this notion of, I need to put on that mask or that facade in order to kind of manifest this image to others. Uh, I think that when people do that, it burns them out. They become someone that they don't want to be. And they become that individual who bottles everything up. And when they bottle everything up, it is bound to at some point explode or implode. And that is where I think we see a lot of root cause of mental health difficulties and stress and emotional volatility and anger and externalization is this immense amount of buildup and compartmentalization because we have this idea that there needs to be a presented image of ourselves to others and maybe even to ourselves. And we end up fooling ourselves. Maybe we don't fool others as much because people are really good about reading people for the most part. And it just causes this really weird, again, disconnect. Mm. And so again, in an effort to not become too esoteric, I just mm. want people to really check in with themselves and say, is there something else that I can be doing in order to reconnect myself to this relational, communal human being that I am so that I don't get lost in trying to please others or fool myself into thinking that I am X, Y, Z. And that doesn't mean we don't see our flaws and try to improve. Like I think that that is an absolute must in how we grow. But I also think too, that if we're experiencing an emotion or a stressor or an event happens in our lives to not compartmentalize everything, but to be open and to be honest and to be self-aware and then learn mechanisms like we teach here on, at, you know, on the Hanu Health Podcast to self-regulate. Mm. And I think it's going to apply to some people more than others. Could it be true by saying that the people who are more vulnerable to acting out according to the image that other people have of them is our young people and teenagers and people in their early 20s? People, I can remember growing up in a, a small village in the east coast of Ireland. And you almost act according to all of what the village members interpret of you. And in some ways, the best way to get some independence there is to get away from that village and to go into a totally different environment. Because when you go into a totally different environment, nobody has any preconceived notions of you. So you can be who you are. But I think the other thing is that when you're talking about checking in on yourself, and there's sometimes words that are bandied about and breaking it down a little bit more. So what does it involve checking in on, it, on yourself? And know thyself is the other one that's been around for for, day, for thousands mm -hmm. of you, for millennia. Is it really about paying attention to what's actually going on in your head? Is it about paying attention to what drives you? Paying attention to what makes you upset? And that it's not that you're overanalyzing yourself, but you get an idea of what makes you tick. And you also get an idea how much wasted energy that you might spend on worrying and thinking about things that are never going to happen. You know, being here and wanting to be over there, that kind of, that check-in. Because I always wondered about the word awareness. Again, we hear awareness all the mm -hmm. time. What does it really yeah. mean to be aware? It's an interesting question because... It is thrown around so much, this idea. And we talk about it a lot here on Hanu. It's like the idea of self-awareness and self-regulation. But when we conceptualize the idea of self-awareness, what are we really talking about? And, you know, I, I like to use, whenever I can, even more simplified language, like you mentioned just a second ago. Like, what is it that makes you tick? I love the old adage of like, whatever we don't measure, we are not likely to change. And that doesn't mean, you know, the quantification or biometric things that we do, because yes, that can be helpful and can be important. But measurement also comes back to this idea of checking in and being aware of what are those things that affect us? And then not what is it, but why? Like, why does it affect us? So this kind of gets at the core of the root cause, right? Somebody cuts me off in traffic 
and they flip the bird at me and I become a really emotionally volatile. So like we have kind of the what. So the what was they cut me off. Um, but what's the why? What's at the core of it? And that's really kind of asking the question of, you know, you know, what makes me tick? Like for me, it could be, oh, they think that, you know, they have the right to get somewhere faster than me because, you know, they think that they're, you know, more privileged individual. Like they have kind of the higher pedestal here. Or maybe it's, you know, they're trying to, and this is just kind of me random, like hot take here, is maybe they're like, oh, I've got the fast car. So I want to show off my fast car. Probably nobody's thinking that, but maybe it could be that somebody's like, oh, well, you know, I want my car to be faster. I'm going to cut them off now. Like there's all these potential reasons, but we have to dig at kind of the root, ca- root cause at the core of it. Um, in psychology, we refer to this as schemas or core beliefs or kind of what's at the, what's at the root of things. And it's a good tenant for us to remind people of is that awareness doesn't just mean kind of like what is causing the stress, but what is causing, how is that connected to why it's causing stress? What is at the absolute core of it? And so when I think about awareness, that's what I think about is like the what and then the why. And the why is a little bit more difficult sometimes to find, but I think it is worth a high level of self-exploration in order to unpack the why of stress or the why of frustration, the why of anger, the why of, you know, you fill in the blank. Mm. It's kind of provided that you come to a a truthful conclusion on it. So you could come to a conclusion that this guy is flipping the bird because he's a total outright bully. And this is what he does in his everyday life. And you're getting peeved with him because here's an asshole and I just want to give him something back. But uh, that, might nece- <laughs> right. that mightn't necessarily be the truth of it, though. And I, it's so complex. And I often wondered, you know, why many of us have developed an interest in you very much formally into psychology. And mm-hmm. I developed an interest very much in bringing a stillness to the mind in terms of breath work was because we had mm-hmm. those issues ourselves. And I often feel mm-hmm. that many mm-hmm. people who go into that field there's almost a self-exploration first to find out really how the mind is working. But is it Mm -hmm. really about how the mind is working or is it bringing that quietness to the mind, that practical experience? Yeah, just it's one of those things, you know. Can we really come to a conclusion on the mind by using the mind to come to the conclusion? I don't know. Right. Sometimes I give up. I just follow my breathing and I forget about it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you know, what's the great thing about that is that when in doubt, come back to breathing (laughs) because we know for a fact uh, there, it is science backed that for a fact, we're going to be able to reset and control the nervous system better if we come back to physiology. But, you know, I think it's the, it's the age old question that we ask in psychology, that we ask in neuroscience, that we ask in philosophy. Um, It's kind of like this, this why, and then how do we, solve. And I think that there, and this is such a blanket response and a cop out, if you will, there's a lot of different pathways. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of different responses. And I think it's a lot of bio-individuality. And uh, again, I know people are probably listening and thinking, what a cop-out answer. But I don't have a better answer. Even after all my years of education in psychology, I don't have a one-size-fits-all response to this. Um, and I think that's just the natural complexity of psychology. I think that's the natural complexity of human behavior, human interaction, interaction and human engagement. And so until then, I'll leave everybody with bated breath. I'll keep trying to figure that one out uh, and I'll get back to you all. Just before we move on, call Krishnamurti, I'm, sure, I'm sure you've came across. And he was giving a talk and some of the followers were following him for literally for decades and listening to every word that he was saying. And he stopped once during the talk and he said, he says, he says, do you want to know my secret? And of course, people's ears pecked up. And he said, <laughs> my secret is that I do not care what happens. All right, Patrick, I know we were going to jump into another subject, uh, but we're going to hold that subject and may not even uh, be fitting the next time that we talk. Uh, but we'll, we'll move on to the Q&A because we've got some really good questions that I think we need to dive in. So let's jump into it. So just if anybody is tuning in for their very first time to listen to these Q&As that Patrick and I do uh, once a month, uh, as long as I don't forget all my gear at home. 
you submit the questions at the as the listener. And as the listener, you can ask us anything related to breath work and heart rate variability and stress and mental health and resilience and focus. We kind of answer it all. A lot of people tend to ask us a lot of breath work questions. Um, granted, that is Patrick's specialization, and he is an expert in that area. And I tend to know a little bit about it as well. So let's get dive into these questions. I mean, again, you can submit this anyway. You can uh, write to us, podcast at hanuhealth.com. You can submit a question on Instagram, um, on any other social media outlets, anywhere you have access to us, send it your way. So this first one is a really good one that I am excited to talk about. It's a bit of a lengthy question. So I'm going to ask the question and then we'll probably have to break it out in phases on how we respond. So this comes from Daniel. So Daniel, thanks for asking this question. Daniel says, I have a breathwork question. I have dealt with anxiety off and on and have tried to use breathwork to raise my HRV. One of my symptoms, though, is that I have trouble breathing when panicked and bringing my breath to the forefront while doing these exercises seems to be counterproductive, giving me more stress than less. I can usually raise my HRV through a three to four minute session of breathing, four, seven, eight, which is four second inhale, seven second hold, eight second exhale, but then it returns quickly to the lower levels. So basically what he is asking is, is this normal that when he's anxious and when he's experiencing panic, that when he turns to the breath, it leads to more anxiety. It doesn't actually reduce his stress response. We'll answer and I can comment on the HRV aspect next, but I'm very curious, Patrick, if this is something that you've run across when people get really anxious or panicked and then they turn to breathing, it makes them more anxious than panicked. And then probably the second part to that question is, is what, what would you do differently or what would you do to modify your approach? I don't think it just happens when the individual places their attention on their breath when they're feeling panicked. Many people with anxiety, mm. once they place attention on their breathing full stop, it can bring on the anxiety. I think it's very important to realize that with people with anxiety and panic disorder, it's a very individual thing. And the only way you know how you react to breathing exercises is actually to try them. And even when I'm working with somebody with anxiety, I kind of know things to be looking out for, but I don't know how the person is going to react to the different breathing exercises. I would go with a few things. A person coming into me with anxiety, because I forgot um, the questioner's name there. Number one is I would be looking at their sleep. Daniel. Daniel. And I think it's really important to get mm-hmm. sleep quality right. Number two is mm-hmm. that when they feel everything is going okay, is literally then to be practicing slowing down breathing. And always think about the exhalation. Mm-hmm. Always think about slowing down the speed of the exhalation and the signaling from the body up to the brain. And pay attention as well to your own breathing patterns because 75% of the anxiety population have dysfunctional breathing. That's according to the literature. But we see it. You know, when mm-hmm. I see groups of people coming in and uh, when I look at breathing, it's very, it can be irregular. It can be a little bit faster, a little bit upper chest. And that's all it has to be, you know. Sometimes people feel that they have faulty breathing if they're in a panic attack. Of course, panic attack, but that's the extreme. But everyday breathing can be faulty, even if it's just subtle differences. Now, again, we're not looking for perfection here on breathing either, because that can generate its own anxiety. Um, So I think the one thing that I would say to Daniel is nose breathing all the time, in and out, and definitely practicing it when things are going pretty well. Um, If you get anxious when things are going well, do small breath holds. So you don't have to focus on your breathing to do breathing recovery. So for example... If you take a normal breath in through your nose and out through your nose, pinch your nose and hold your nose and count for five seconds, five, four, three, two, one, let go, breathe in through your nose, breathe normal then for about 10 to 15 seconds. And that can help to stimulate the vagus nerve because it's almost that you're extending the exhalation, but you're, you're not, you're holding it, you're holding the breath after an exhalation, which is by itself extending the exhalation which in turn then can help to bring a calmness. Mm-hmm. Um, I would try different strategies, lying on your back, bringing breathing, not just looking at breathing from a one dimension. Again, a little bit like the mind, breathing is a little bit more complex um, without having to overdo it, but certainly nose breathing, gently softening your breathing, playing with that, slowing down your breathing. Uh, I think that 478 yeah. is what came from mm-hmm. Andrew Wheel or Andrew Weil originally. 
So, mm-hmm. and that's not always going to be an easy one either to do right. because breathing in for four and holding for seven and breathing out for eight, you're talking about 19 seconds. You're talking about changing the respiratory rate down to three breaths per minute. Can you imagine if, if I was yep. feeling panicked and the drive to breathe and my breathing is faster and harder? And at that point, the respiratory rate might be 20 breaths per minute. It might even be faster. And you're automatically then trying to slow mm-hmm. it down from 20 breaths per minute right down to three breaths per minute. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I do think if you're panicked, always think about taking it to nose slow and low. Don't necessarily count it because yeah. if you're counting it, you feel that you have to stick to this prescription, but it you will only be able to stick to something depending on your own breathing patterns. Slow down your breathing and slow it down relative to what you're already doing. And even if you slow it down by 10 or 20%, you're still making some progress and the other thing is that most people or many people with breathing problems, it's very common that they have perfectionist tendencies. And here what we do mm-hmm. is just gently play with it. And sometimes just bring your attention onto your breath and soften your breathing and soften it to the point of a tolerable air hunger and uh, and to go with mm-hmm. that. Yeah, I love that response, Patrick. And there's a lot that came up for me, um, both questions and then also my response to that as well, because... This is not uncommon with people who have pretty significant anxiety. One of the points that you made that I loved is if we know that physiologically, when we are under duress or we're feeling distressed, stress is heightened, we'll even use Daniel's word of panicked. I mean, that's again, kind of on the far end of the spectrum of stress. Uh, if we put stress on a, on a spectrum from relaxation, uh, you know, on one end, panic is on the other end. Um, one of the things that we know is that physiologically respiration rate is going to significantly increase. And so if somebody is breathing, let's say at an average rate of 14 to 16, and they get up to, let's say close to 20, and then immediately we try to drop them to three, the Delta there is too large. The Delta is too large. And what can happen then, unfortunately, is that the body, it puts the body in even more of a stress response. So what we see is that it can cause significantly more enhanced anxiety because we've shifted it too far. It's very similar to when we think about the homeostatic uh, mechanisms of blood pressure. What happens if you're sitting and you stand too quickly and we have a fluctuation in this uh, in, in, in baroreceptor change from, from, th- from that response, what we ha- see is that when blood pressure changes too quickly, people get fainty, people get a little bit dizzy, they might even get a little bit nauseous. And that's because we know that if we're trying to regulate our physiology, we don't want to make too fast or too extreme of changes. It just, that's not the way our physiology works. So I think it's really, really good that you noted that. So my recommendation too is that let's not change it from an extreme, let's say you're at 20 down to three, but let's modify a little bit differently. And that's going to vary. The reason I'm not giving a range is it's going to vary. I've seen that for a lot of people around six breaths per minute is still pretty doable. Uh, Will that take away kind of that panic or that anxiety immediately? Potentially, but not all the time, which leads me to kind of my next point that you made that I think is really important to hone in on, which is we don't want to rely on these change agents or mechanisms solely when we're trying to use it to change a response that is, again, kind of more significant or more extreme, like panic or anxiety, which means that we need to have that response already conditioned. If we just utilize it under those conditions, it's bound to be troublesome. But if we practice it in more, let's say, quote unquote, relaxed conditions, when people think, oh, well, I don't really need it then, right? Because I'm already relaxed. The point is not necessarily to enhance a more of a relaxation response. It's to condition the nervous system. It's to condition the nervous system over and over and over again so that when you throw it, that mechanism or that change agent or that therapeutic, when you're under duress, it says, I know what you're doing. You've already done this a thousand times already. This is what we go to in an effort to engage the nervous system, to engage control, autonomic control. So I think that that is a perfect response. So Daniel, if it's not already a part of your daily routine, especially as someone who experiences anxiety or panic, 
I think it has to. I think it's imperative that it is a part of daily routine. The one thing that I also wanted to comment on was the whole idea of performance anxiety. I think that that's a huge one and it's no need to beat a dead horse that performance anxiety will inhibit your ability to regulate your nervous system. What is at the core of performance anxiety? It tends to be cognition. So it's the idea of we can inherently change our physiology by regulating our breathing rate. So that's a physiological process. However, if we have this, if we have cognition going on and on and on, it can override what's happening in our physiology. That's how incredibly valuable and important cognition is to this whole thing. It can override it. What do I mean by override? When I say override, I'm talking about this idea that if you are panicked or you're having a, in a state of anxiety and you change your breathing and you keep cognitively telling yourself like, stress less, stress less, stress less. This is what we're doing. We're like, we're not going to experience anxiety. Then the problem is, is that when you don't experience it right away, then what happens? Well, then heart rate increases, heart rate variability decreases. You find it more stressful in that moment because your mind is not overriding your body in that point in time. So what's the solution to that? I think the biggest solution that I can provide people comes down to mindfulness and mindful awareness. So what does that mean? It means I'm not going to shut off cognition because we know that every time we try to shut off cognition, it tends to backfire. It's like the idea of like, don't think about something. Don't think about the pink elephant. All you're going to be able to think about is a pink elephant. So the idea is to tap into mindful awareness. What does that mean? I think it means tracking the breath. I think it means just simply noticing right now, this is the inhale. This is the sensation of the inhale. I feel the coolness coming in through the nasal pathway. And now it's time to exhale. It's me not judging. It's just me being mindfully aware of the entire process. What does that do? That helps us to connect more to our breath and disconnect from some of that performance cognition, some of that anxiety cognition that continues. I think it's an incredibly valuable piece that tends to get overlooked in a lot of breathwork practice, HRV biofeedback, is the idea of just tracking the breath, just watching the breath as if you're an observer, as if you are standing back and just kind of uh, working as an archaeologist of your breath. This is what the sensation of the exhale and experience looks like. Here's the exhale. And then when the, you know, mad little, you know, cognition comes up on the shoulder, the little demon comes up. It's a matter of not saying I'm going to push it away. It's an acknowledgement that it's there. And it's an acknowledgement of what can I come back to the anchor that is the breath. The anchor that is the breath now is in my full transparent awareness. And it might be one, two seconds after that, that the little kind of cognition demon comes back, pull yourself back every time. The great thing is that the breath is not going anywhere. It's going to happen no matter what. You can always come back to it as an anchor. So again, I think that the one piece of advice that I'd offer Daniel on top of everything that you just mentioned, uh, Patrick, is this idea of mindfulness and mindful awareness. And, uh, you know, not to give a shameless plug, but it's one of the things that we're really trying to build into to our Hanu app is this idea of not just watching numbers change, not just having expectations of what this is going to do for you, but really saying at the core of it, I'm coming down to changing the biomechanics, cadence, biochemistry, and mindfulness component of breathing. And if we can accomplish that, I've tended to see that for people with anxiety and panic, if you introduce that one last component of mindfulness, it can be invaluable, just extremely effective. Yeah. The one thing that I was going to say, and this is kind of the second part of the question, um, uh, Patrick, and I'll just respond really quickly to it. Daniel talks about uh, raising HRV you know, through a three to four minute session. He's able to do that. But then like as soon as he's done uh, with HRV training, he sees his HRV go back to normal. It doesn't stay up. And what I would say is, is that that is a normal process. Like when we see an enhancement of HRV, um, and then it returns to normal, like that is a normal behavior. So the evidence of, let's say, autonomic nervous system change is that there is this raise in HRV. There's this lowering of respiratory rate. There's this lowering of heart rate. But then again, when we return back to normal, that's where we should be. Now, a raise in HRV and a staying raised in HRV 
can occur, but really it's like when we see a dip compared to our normal baseline and then we get back to normal, if we continue to see dips, then that's where I say keep training, keep working on that component. But if we raise it significantly higher and we return back to normal, that's actually what we're looking for. So I always tell people in the field and the work of biometrics and heart rate variability, normal is better. So whether we get really high compared to normal and we return to normal, that's fine. If we're dipped and we come to normal and we stay at normal, that's good as well. If we dip, come to normal and then go back down, well, that's where we can continue to practice and see if we can regulate back up to our normal range. So that's all I'll I'll have to say there um, on that. Patrick, anything else to add on kind of like anything else people can do for, you know, anxiety, panic, or do you feel like we covered that one pretty well? I think it's very important to go easy on yourself. You know, even with the breath awareness, Jay, I think there's a tendency for some people who are overly analytical that when they follow their breath, they're not necessarily following it. They're they're thinking about the breath. They're still in their mind. There's my breath in, there's my breath out. It's still thinking. And that can be normal. And even to go with that, because at least you're replacing any worrying thoughts with the fact that, you know, you're following the breath, even though you're thinking about it. I know when, when I started off with following the breath, going back 25 years ago, there's times you make good progress and you think that you have it. And then there's times that, you know, life gets in the way and you realize you don't. But, but I would say overall, yeah. though, it's a tremendous journey. It's, it's yeah. something brilliant for every one of us to take into our lives. So your, your mention about HRV was very interesting there. So I have a question. Say, for example, one of the listeners then has your device and they, they measure their HRV and they say, okay, I, they go in on Google and for Google for their age, their HRV should be X, but their HRV is on the floor. Should that mm-hmm. person then, what's, what approach do you think is best for that person? Because they know themselves or after looking at Google and now there's this thing that Jesus, I'm I'm almost dead. My HRV is not where it should be. <laughs> right. How do I what do I do there? Right. What does that person do? Very good question. Um, first things first, right? Don't go to Dr. Google. Don't go to Dr. Wikipedia. <laughs> and uh, easier said than done. You know, we have access to all this information, but sometimes too, we have to leave it to people, um, you know, who are experts in that field to be the interpreters of that information. Um, so what I would say you know, to this is that when it comes to heart rate variability, uh, there are, there are normative, let's say this is the best way to put it. There are norms because that data have been collected, but there should never be a normative comparison. And the reason being is because norms doesn't tell the full story. Norms just says, Hey, this is kind of where it falls for, you know, an average of, 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 of people within whatever your age group or your gender or whatever it may be that we're, we're comparing to. That's all a norm's giving you, but it doesn't provide a level of interpretation. What we know is that there are so many confounding variables as to why HRV uh, or, or as to what impacts HRV, things like genetics, things like height, weight, cardiorespiratory fitness, gender even, all of these things factor in. I mean, males naturally have a higher HRV than females. There are individuals who are taller who have higher HRVs than those who are shorter. Does that mean that they have you know, better, uh, better stress response, better cardiorespiratory fitness? Absolutely not. And there can be genetic components as well. What we really need to compare to is not say, hey, my aspiration is to be within my normative age. I've seen that, you know, those who are 40 to 45, like have an average RMSSD of, you know, 35. The whole goal or notion shouldn't be to get there, which is different than other biometrics, by the way. And there are some biometrics that kind of make sense. I mean, for people to kind of strive to be within their normative range. But this is not one of them because of, again, all of those confounding variables. My take on this is that the end goal really is to find out where is your normal range, where do you fluctuate, which is what our app does. And then once you find that, to stay within that range. The goal is not to say, let me see how high I can boost it. There are ways to do that. But I think that you miss a lot when you your intention is to 
uh, only try to raise your baseline HRV. I think you are going to be really disappointed if you do that. But if your intention is to say, I want to gain better stress resiliency, I want to perform better or whatever it may be that your goal is, you, you can utilize HRV as a good proxy and more so how well can you modulate HRV? So how well can you fluctuate HRV with breathing? Because that's more of a demonstration of autonomic control. How much control does your breath have on your nervous system is indicative by fluctuations up in, in an upward direction of HRV. Now you may see it and very likely see it come back down to where you started and that's okay. That's your normal range. That's where you function at. Um, breathing alone isn't necessarily going to move significantly that baseline needle. If you do one practice, you're not, it's not like, oh, I raised my HRV from 25 to 50 and now I'm going to have that throughout the rest of my day. That's not the way HRV works. That's not the way, you know, a cardiorespiratory system works. So the end goal again is to say, how well can I utilize it as a proxy and how well can I move that needle compared to my own numbers? So in the end, the net net of this is self-comparison over normative comparison all day, every day. And maybe we'll find something in the literature down the road that tells us otherwise. But right now we have no evidence to say that there's any mechanism for the utilization of normative comparison that need be had. Does that help to explain that? Oh, totally. I think it's great. All right, Patrick, we have our next question. So let's jump into it. This comes from Angie. And this is like a full on almost, I would say almost, if not 100% Patrick McCune question, which is, I've heard Patrick talk about a shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. That is such a mouthful every time I hear it too. Oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. What is it? And then how do we use it? So let's break that one apart, Patrick. How about we give kind of the over, the in-depth explanation of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and then how can it be used in our own practice, or should it be used, would be another good question. I think it's a very good curve to, just to highlight how the red blood cells release oxygen to the tissues. You know, any of us understand that when we take a breath of fresh air into our lungs and oxygen passes from the lungs into the blood, 98.5% of oxygen in the blood is carried bound by hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is a protein within the red blood cells. So you can imagine this hemoglobin as being the carrier of your oxygen in the blood. And the real question to ask then is, how can I get that hemoglobin to release oxygen to where it's needed? So I want to get oxygen del delivered to the tissues and organs, but how do I get that oxygen delivered? And the factors that play a role with that are increased temperature is one, so, for example, if you're doing physical exercise, the muscles that are working the hardest are going to get hotter. And those muscles, because of the increase in temperature, will the affinity of hemoglobin for oxygen lessens. In other words, hemoglobin is going to release oxygen to those working muscles. I think the human body is so intelligent that, you know, when you really think about it, oxygen isn't delivered equally throughout the body. So if you're going for a run, it's the leg muscles that are going to need more oxygen. And the more you move those leg muscles, the hotter they become, but they also become hypercaptic or hypercarbic. Mm. So they're generating more carbon dioxide. So the increased carbon dioxide and the drop to blood BH, more oxygen gets delivered to those muscles. But I remember this. I remember I was giving a course for people with anxiety and panic disorder going back about 10 years ago. I had a really analytical person inside in the classroom. And uh, having her do the exercises, and she wasn't quite getting it. And uh, she wants to know about the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So what I was on the board explaining to her. And once I went through that, then she got it. Because this is a curve that's in, you will mm. find this in any respiratory medical textbook. Or if you go to, for example, Dr. John West, who is, it's a very popular book he has called Respiratory Physiology. A lot of medical doctors will read it. And the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve has got an x-axis and the y-axis. And in the vertical axis, that's your blood oxygen saturation. So of your, all of your hemoglobin, what's the fraction of it that's carrying oxygen? And normally, our SAO2 is between 95 to 99%. And then the horizontal axis mm -hmm. is the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood, 
which is determined by the partial pressure of oxygen from the lungs, which in turn, of course, is determined by gas exchange, atmospheric pressure, and 21% of atmospheric pressure, etc. So the curve itself then is normal conditions, body temperature, pH, CO2, etc. But the simplest way to think of the curve is based on the Bohr effect. And the Bohr effect was written by a Danish physiologist called Christian Bohr back in 1904. And he said that carbon dioxide pressure, he said, as carbon dioxide increases in the blood, blood pH drops, and the affinity or bond for that hemoglobin has for oxygen lessens. So in other words, hemoglobin releases its load in the presence of increased carbon dioxide and drop to blood pH. Now, I think that the real thing about this, Jay, is how many instructors, when we hear breathing practice, and we've done this, we have went in on YouTube and we looked at, say, out of 10 people, seven of the instructors were encouraging these full big breaths. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you were encouraging your student to take a full big breath and down to six breaths per minute, but filling their lungs, that individual could have a tidal volume. They may be breathing in three liters of air in that one and six breaths per minute, mm-hmm. so they're breathing 18 liters of air per minute. But normal minute ventilation is between four and six. So what happens when you breathe more air than what you need? So we as human beings during rest, we need between four to six liters of air per minute. If one is slowing down their breathing to six full big breaths per minute, you can be breathing in 18 liters. You can be breathing two to three times more air than what you need. Now, number one is it will increase the PO2 in the blood. However, it will not increase your hemoglobin saturation. Well, it may by one or two percentage points, but you have to bear in mind that during normal breathing, you're already almost fully saturated. The problem with breathing too much air is that you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. So you take a full big breath Mm -hmm. in and you have a full big breath out. You're blowing off that carbon dioxide from the lungs. As carbon dioxide lowers in the lungs, it's going to lower in the blood. And as carbon dioxide reduces in the blood, blood pH increases, and hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen, holds on, onto oxygen more readily. So it's kind of ironic. You could be looking at an instructor teaching breathing practice, but that instructor is unknowingly encouraging their students to reduce oxygen delivery throughout the body as opposed to increasing mm. it. And I think that's where the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve really comes in because it's it's a fixed explanation or if i use the word law or effect as to why carbon dioxide is important and carbon dioxide is not just that waste gas that people talk about and that's why you know if anybody is in the habit of taking these full big breaths try and understand the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve if you're taking full deep breaths you get rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood this increases blood ph and hemoglobin holds on to oxygen more readily. So it's ironic that the human being who's taking the full big breaths with a minute ventilation more than what they need is actually having less oxygen delivery throughout the body. And that was a really great explanation. I think you really unpacked it. So basically, if we want to utilize, if we want to have a reduction in the utilization of oxygen to muscular tissue, uh, then the great way to do that is to take in extremely deep breaths and expel a lot of CO2. And therefore, hemoglobin will hold on to oxygen. It will not be delivered as readily, therefore not utilized. And it's very ineffective and not a practical strategy. So one thing you talk about, Patrick, is you talk about a shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. Explain a little bit about that shift. What causes the shift? um, And is it something that we are aspiring to do um, as you know, in our breathwork practice or not so much? Yeah, I think it comes back to the understanding. So basically, we have the curve, which is a, an S-shaped curve. And the normal curve is normal body temperature, normal carbon dioxide, normal blood pH, normal 2,3-dysphosphoglycerate. But if we hyperventilate, the curve shifts to the left. And as the curve shifts mm-hmm. to the left, for a given partial pressure of oxygen, you see that the saturation Um, the saturation of arterial blood with oxygen increases. Now, people might think, well, this is a good thing because 
now my SAO2 is increased, which is of my hemoglobin, the fraction of it carrying oxygen has now increased. But you have to bear in mind, the reason that hemoglobin saturation has increased or blood oxygen saturation has increased is because the hemoglobin is holding on to oxygen and is not releasing it. Right. Patrick, let, let me clarify to you. Did you say SAO2? Yes, yes. So there's two. There's, so is we that have, the same thing as SpO2 or is that different? It's pretty much. No, it's, it's very, very close. So basically when we're measuring SpO2, we're using pulse oximetry. And this is Got applying mm-hmm. the peripheral blood vessels. So SpO2 gives us a pretty good guideline of the SaO2. But in a hospital setting, right. the doctor will be looking at SaO2. Well, they use SpO2. So SpO2 is not perfectly accurate, but it's a pretty good indicator. And uh, Got it. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. So, And then if you think about doing that breathwork practice, if you want your hemoglobin then to release oxygen more readily, and this comes back to the, Daniel's question as well earlier on, how about a gardener who's doing physical exercise all day long? And they're doing physical exercise, they're moving their muscles, their muf- muscles are getting hotter, they're increasing production of carbon dioxide, blood pH is dropping. And if the gardener has, its mouth, has his mouth open or her mouth open, there's not going to be a whole lot of effect in terms of the, S- the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. But if that gardener does all of their physical exercise with the mouth closed, carbon dioxide will increase in the blood because the nose is a smaller entry mm-hmm. and exit to the mouth. So there's more resistance imposed to your breathing by breathing through the nose than through your mouth. So you do your physical mm-hmm. exercise mm-hmm. with the mouth closed, carbon dioxide increases, blood pH drops, and the curve, the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, curve shifts to the right. Hemoglobin affinity mm-hmm. for oxygen lessens. So the gardener who's doing their physical exercise with the mouth closed is going to be better oxygenated, especially the working muscles, than the gardener who's doing their physical exercise with their mouth open. Because if we do physical exercise with our mouth open, carbon dioxide in the blood will hardly change because our ventilation will increase proportionately to the production of carbon dioxide. Right. And this points back to Jay. You know, you go for a fast walk with your mouth closed, you feel an increased air hunger. The increased air mm-hmm. hunger is telling mm-hmm. you that carbon dioxide has increased in the blood. So coming back to Daniel, yes. if you want to do breathing exercises and you don't want to pay any attention to your breathing, go for a fast walk with your mouth closed. Go for a light jog with your mouth closed. Because even by doing that, you're exposing your body to an increased carbon dioxide in the blood. And the premise here is that you want to reduce your body's chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide buildup. And by doing that, with a reduced chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide, your breathing is going to be lighter and slower. So yeah, I think it's a I think it's a nice, interesting play, like the understanding of carbon dioxide. And yes. I'd like to make one more point as well. I often think about the person with anxiety coming in, and very often when you look at their breathing, you'll see that their breathing is a little bit shallow. You know, they're breathing more mm. with greater use of the upper chest muscles and reduced recruitment of the diaphragm. And we have right. to ask the question, why does that person breathe shallow? That oftentimes that person is breathing shallow because they feel air hunger. And then why is that person feeling air hunger? Well, they're feeling air hunger because of poor breathing from a biochemical dimension. If we start working with that person and just focus on bringing their breathing from upper chest down to diaphragmatic breathing or greater recruitment of the diaphragm, but if we don't address their breathing from a biochemical dimension, they will continue feeling that air hunger so their breathing goes back into the upper chest. So mm-hmm. in order to improve the biomechanics, or at least breathing from a biomechanical point of view, we have to eliminate or at least to address what's actually causing them to upper chest breathing. Is it because of air hunger? Is it because of increased chemosensitivity to carbon dioxide? So the whole premise again is you practice breathing less air for short periods of time to improve CO2 tolerance. The respiratory rate starts to normalize. Tidal volume normalizes, minute ventilation normalizes. The individual then feels, you know, more comfortable breathing. They don't have that air hunger because the one thing that people will often say is, I just feel that I cannot take a satisfying breath. 
Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great explanation, Patrick. That's awesome. Um, now when I'm doing my breathwork practice, I'm going to be thinking about the little Patrick voice in my head saying, no, nope, we don't want that left, uh, <laughs> left shift in the dissociation curve. We want the right one. Um, so yeah, quit, quit trying to expel air so fast, Jay. So, uh, yeah, I like, I, I like that, but I think it was a good representation and hopefully that does unpack, um, kind of that educational component for people so that when they hear us talk about, and especially you talk about, you know, a shift in the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, like it makes sense. And then it's all really all about oxygen utilization and how we can leverage, uh, kind of the pace of breathing and the biochemistry of breathing as well. And more importantly, I would even say, uh, to benefit, um, our overall utilization of oxygen. So that's awesome, man. Great for, uh, uh, that response. Angie, I hope that helps. I think that was a really clear explanation. And now you will always know when you hear Patrick use that phrase of the oxyhemoglobin <laughs> dissociation curve, you'll know, you'll know what it is now, which is great. Awesome. One more question, um, which is really funny that we talked a little bit about this idea of performance and athletics and exercise and nasal breathing. And I find this is a really fascinating one because it applies to me as well. And I have my own thoughts and ideas, but really ready to unpack it. It comes from Tim. And this is what Tim asks. He says, I am training for a triathlon and find breathing while swimming quite difficult. I've tried to breathe only through the nose, but this seems almost impossible. Have you ever seen or heard of any nasal swimmers? Also, my also will helping my CO2 tolerance help me with the swim portion. So this is interesting. Tim is a triathlete. Um, so obviously three sports that he's participating in swim, bike, run. He's saying, I'm trying to really like better my swim. I just find breathing during swimming very difficult, um, which it is a very different transition from other types of practices. He tried out nasal breathing with swimming, which is a very interesting subject that we can talk about. But he said, it seems impossible. He wants to know, Patrick, have you ever seen anybody do this? And I have my own thoughts. I really want to hear yours first, but have you ever seen anybody do this? Is this even possible or should he be thinking about something different in regards to training as a swimmer, as a triathlete with nasal only type focus? So what's your thoughts there, Patrick? People in the past have told me they've been able to do it, breathe through their nose during swimming. Um, That's incredible. I'm not so sure, to be honest with you. And just in the basis that you're breathing through your nose, you're going to be inhaling that water into your nose, into your nasal cavity. It becomes uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. the other thing to bear in mind is that swimming is the one sport that actually will improve your breathing patterns. You know, Mm -hmm. if we consider if an individual is swimming on top of the water and ideally, of course, their face is in the water, the individual has water pressing up up against their, their body. This in turn is creating a resistance to their breathing. So the individual then is working harder to take each breath. Mm-hmm. But not only that, Makes but their sense. face is in the water and they're not going to be coming up for so much air. They may take a breath every three strokes or a good swimmer can actually do the entire 50-meter pool with one, with one breath. Mm-hmm. Um, these would be elite mm-hmm. professional swimmers. I think swimming is a very, very good sport in improving breathing patterns. Traditionally, children with asthma were often encouraged to go swimming. And if you see kids Mm. in the swimming pool, they throw a diving stick into the pool. They go in after the stick. They're holding their breath. It's it's a slight stress to the child. And of course, they actually get a lot out of it. They're building up. They're increasing their CO2. They're improving their CO2 tolerance. They're helping to open up their airways. They're increasing blood flow to the brain. They come back up and they're... They're gasping for breath, but they recover. <laughs> George Dalham has done some research on nasal breathing in athletes, and he is a triathlete, but he also tops tri- he also coaches triathletes at the top level. He's based, I think, mm-hmm. in Colorado State University. And his 2018 paper was that he got 10 recreational athletes, and he had them breathe exclusively through their nose for six months. And then he measured their performance with nose breathing versus mouth breathing. With nose breathing, they were able to achieve 100% of their work rate intensity, but with 22% less ventilation. Carbon dioxide in the blood was 44 millimeters of mercury with nose breathing, and it was 40 millimeters of mercury with mouth breathing. And the fraction of expired oxygen was less with nasal breathing as with mouth breathing. So it comes back to Tim's question. Mm. What can I do in terms of breathing in the pool Well, I suppose the one thing in the pool is that what you want to do is to reduce hydrodynamic drag. 
every time that you have to take a breath in the water, mm-hmm. you're losing propulsion. So it's almost that you want to be as streamlined as possible. And to be streamlined as possible, how many strokes can you do before you need to take a breath? So instead of taking a breath mm-hmm. every three strokes, maybe take a breath every five strokes or seven strokes. However, for you to do that, you need to have good CO2 tolerance. And it's not yeah. just about training your breathing in the pool. It's about training your breathing outside of the pool. So you can be doing breathing exercises during rest, but also jogging with your mouth closed, making sure your mouth is closed during sleep, and gently softening during rest, softening your breathing to the point of air hunger, doing breath holding. This in turn will reduce your body's sensitivity to the buildup of carbon dioxide because the primary stimulus to breathe is, is not oxygen. It's carbon dioxide. So you can imagine the athlete and they're, they're swimming across the water and they're feeling the sensation of breathlessness. What is driving that? Well, one factor is carbon dioxide buildup. But if you have an athlete with a strong sensitivity to the accumulation of carbon dioxide, they're going to be more breathless. So I would say is, you know, improve your everyday breathing patterns, switch to nose light, slow and low breathing. Bring because how you breathe during physical exercise is going to be determined how you breathe during rest and how you breathe during sleep is going to be determined how you breathe during wakefulness. We can't suddenly expect our breathing to automatically fix itself during physical exercise if we have faulty breathing patterns during the day. So we need to look at breathing, that 24-7 picture. But yeah, swimming is great. Um, But um, yeah, yeah, work, work on breathing too. Yeah. Great, great thoughts all around. And I I concur with everything. You know, it's like, it's the idea as a psychologist is like, we can't expect to improve mental health with one hour of therapy every single week, but we don't do anything else other than go to that one therapy session. Will it help? Yes. Will we see a significant move of the needle compared to if we did other type of work and practice outside of the therapy session? Not nearly as much. So I think it goes to your point that practicing these, these, you know, and of course we're going to, you know, pitch oxygen advantage as a primary mechanism of increasing CO2 tolerance. I think it's a great way um, to do that. Uh, That is going to help you to become a better performer and swimmer. Switching to nasal breathing only is a really great way to do it. Now, does that mean you need to be a nasal breather only during swimming like not necessarily again like if they're out there they are few and far between even amongst you know people who have really high co2 tolerances um, the ability to get air in through the nose especially if you're trying to reduce drag and you're keeping the head really close to the water and your nose is barely coming out you're going to get a nose full of water and that's going to derail everything. Uh, You're going to stop swimming after that. So you really want to be cautious and to be careful uh, with, with those types of things. But I love this idea of like, if we practice outside of the swim session, it's going to make us a better swimmer and swimming in and of itself, as you mentioned too, is also going to help us be a better breather outside. So it's, it's working in tandem with an, with one another. So Tim, I think that's going to be really helpful for you is to really implement a CO2 practice uh, or, or, training to see to tolerance type practice. Um, it's going to make you a better swimmer. And I think that swimming is going to make you a better breather. So I love kind of, again, how they work in tandem with one another. So yeah, great question. Great response. Jay, which points into what we were talking about earlier on. Sometimes there's a perception that everything is black and white. When we do physical exercise yeah. during the low and moderate intensity activity, have your mouth closed, but there's a point at which you have yeah. to open them out. You know, sometimes people send me in an email um, I've read your book and I've been practicing everything. I'm doing sprinting with my mouth closed and it's almost that I'm turning blue. And I'm coming back and I'm saying, we do advocate nasal breathing because it knows is the organ which does all of the work. <laughs> but there is a time that you cannot get all that air, you know. And of course, it depends on your boat score. It depends on your fitness. It depends on the size of your nasal airway. So it's not about excruciating right. nasal breathing. It's about nasal breathing but with comfort patrick i tried to do a a a nasal only like zone five high intensity interval training practice like i have really good co2 tolerance because of my practice i would be it would be very difficult if not impossible for me i might pass out if i tried to do nasal only the entire hit training 
Um, I, I actually, I don't want to try that. That sounds excruciating. Like my heart rate's up at like 175 and I'm breathing nasal only. Oh yeah. Good luck, Jay. I'm probably going to pass out in the middle, you know, of the courtyard out there throwing kettlebells around. Um, probably not a good idea. So I think there's times and there's situations and there's knowing limits. If you're getting blue in the face or if you passed out a few times, let's, let's dial that back a little bit. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> oh yeah. But no, that's a great question though, Tim. I love it uh, because, you know, it does get confusing if you hear about like, you know, you hear people like us or James Nestor, like nasal breathing, nasal breathing, nasal breathing. You think, oh, in all situations and all conditions, I have to be doing this type of practice. And it's like, and what we're really saying is in most conditions, especially like if you're at rest and not engaging in high intensity type of practice or training, nasal breathing only. Like it only makes sense to focus on that. But if you're swimming, if you're doing high intensity work, like if heart rate's really, really high, you know, if you're running a marathon, like it might be pretty damn difficult to do nasal only. Um, if not like maybe potentially to your disadvantage. Um, so I would say, you know, your limits mm -hmm. and know kind of what's effective for your performance. Yeah. All right, Patrick. Well, that comes to the conclusion. We had uh, we got through those questions, which I think were amazing questions today. So thank you again for submitting. Again, if you want to submit a question to us as a listener, podcast at honeywealth.com or Instagram is a great way to send your questions over. Normally, we would be giving out a, a, a prize to a lucky review uh, fan, if you will. But again, once again, my focus moved away and I forgot to pull that review. So we're going to have to leave and wait that. I would say if you actually submitted a question, let us know. We'll send you a, a gift package. If you send us an email, podcast at hanuhealth.com, we'll send you a gift package. Uh, just give us your address. And Daniel, Angie, Tim, I'd love to send you some stuff. So that's what I'll, I'll give away three gifts instead of one um, to, to all those who submitted those great questions. But Patrick, man, it's been a blast. Thanks again for joining me today. Uh, yeah, man, take care until next time. Great stuff, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back at it again next month with another Q&A. Thanks for listening to the Hanu Health Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast would not happen without listeners and supporters like you. And the best way to support us and the show is to head on over to iTunes and provide us with a five-star review. This helps us reach others and spread the good word of breathing and stress resiliency. If we read your five-star review on air, please reach out to podcast at hanuhealth.com with your name and mailing address, and we will send you some sweet Hanu gear. Until next time, breathe better and stress less.